in general, that three to five year timeline, that's going to be C Corp, C Corp, C Corp everywhere. If you're operating multinationally, it's going to be C Corp, C Corp everywhere. It's only when you have investors that really want a flow through entity that you put that in place because they are horribly maintenance intensive. You are listening to US Tax, a podcast for Australian accountants with US clients. Welcome to Update 8 of US Tax. This is Heide Robson. In this update, Alan Nunes of Anderson Tax in San Francisco will talk with you about C-Corps and LLCs. Let's just cut across. Taxes enjoy a priority in the United States if a company goes under. And so generally, if a company fails and goes into receivership with taxes unpaid, the first thing that the uh, IRS will do will look for fraudulent conveyances. They'll look for where, where, where the corporation, let's say a foreign shareholder was drawing a salary of a half million dollars for providing services as a consultant. But when they look at it, the value of those services was only $10,000. They're going to say, we want the money to the extent of the difference of the value the company did not receive. And so they'll go through all those transactions. They generally, I, I've never seen them go after an overseas uh, shareholder, unless you're talking about uh, a significant failure that we've all seen in the newspaper somewhere. But it's more of a legal question, what that risk would be, and something that the attorneys can work with you on. But the important thing there is to, to don't get involved into situations where you treat the entity like your, like your back pocket. Make sure that you have contracts in place, that you're observing transfer pricing, et cetera. I had several clients that went under and nobody was responsible for it. And the IRS made these inquiries and went away satisfied that everything was fair. Much easier in the context of a public company, though, than a privately held company because of the stringent uh, governance requirements of the SEC. So that means the use of a C-Corp blocker is really just for tax purposes. It's not for asset protection or to defend against the IIS? It, it will protect you, you know, against creditors. It will protect you against the IRS, but the corporate veil can be pierced, you know, under the fraudulent conveyance statutes, et cetera. So again, it's an area where corporate governance, maintenance, not only by the accountants to make sure that we're meeting all the tax rules, but by the attorneys to make sure that we're meeting all of the corporate governance requirements are met and, and addressed annually. So is this structure that you use a C-Corp as a blocker, is that by far the most popular structure for foreign investors? It's 99% of the time, it's a Delaware C-Corp, regardless of what state they're going to do business in. It's not only because it, it provides a lot of benefits to them, but ultimately when they want to exit or they want to, they want to get involved, maybe some acquisition transactions, the person on the other side of the table is going to want to do business with the Delaware C-Corp. Do you mean in 99% of the time you have an LLC and then the C-Corp is the blocker? Or do you mean 99% of the time it is just a C-Corp and then the foreign investor invests directly into the C-Corp? It's the latter. 99% of the time it's a foreign C-Corp. Remember that LLCs came into vogue when, here was the scenario when they came into vogue. We've got this business running, it's going to generate losses for the first two years, but after that, it's going to turn profitable. You put it in an LLC to begin with because it's going to operate as a partnership. We want everyone to get the benefit of those losses to get their basis recaptured. And then when it starts to become profitable, then we convert it to a C-Corp and stop that revenue from flowing to, down to my shareholders again. 
So the LLC really was meant to be operated as a partnership out of the gate. And so when you sit down with your attorney, drawing up the documents, the governing documents for an LLC are much more complicated because there's operating agreements, et cetera, all these items that have to be addressed because of the nature of the entity. Whereas with the C-Corp, it's a set of probably 10 or 12 documents that 90% of them all have the exact same verbiage. And so it's much quicker. It's easier to set up. You don't have to really worry a lot about what does the corporate governance document say because it's really governed by Delaware general law, not by you know you, you selecting I want to treat option A or option B to certain aspects of the operation of the partnership. So I always look at it if somebody is in an LLC and they want to be in a C corp later, or, you know, it, it's because maybe the lawyer wanted to make more money or maybe they just didn't understand it because why do you want to generate a ton of corporate governance documents uh, that aren't needed because you're not going to operate in that form. So that means that you have an LLC holding the operation and then you have a C-Corp as a blocker. That is actually not that popular. The, the popular one is that you have a C-Corp that holds the trading operations and then possibly you have another blocker or you have direct investments. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying that the, the LLC that's holding the operations, normally we just set it up as a C-Corp from the beginning because we're not, we're accumulating the losses. We're not interested in passing those through to folks. And we're not interested in creating a bunch of corporate governance documents to dictate how the, the priority of these losses, et cetera. But the blocker entity is always going to be a Delaware C-Corp. The underlying entity that the operations in is often a partnership because Many times you want to bring in some U.S. money or want to bring in a small U.S. investment, and they prefer you know, to, to have a, um, a direct ownership interest in the LLC, and so it needs to operate as a partnership. So the blocker is always a Delaware C Corp, and the actual trading entity, if it's profitable, it's always a C Corp, or it's usually a C Corp. I should never say always. If it's profitable, it's a C Corp. But if it's not profitable at the moment and it generates losses, then the shareholders will want it to be an LLC so that they can offset their other income against the losses in the LLC. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. And that strategy, that came out of the 90s. And there's been you know, some IRS pushback on, on, when you can, on, on what the tax toll is to pay when you convert from partnership to C-Corp. And so now, for example, uh, almost every new entity that I see set up unless they're bringing in private equity money that wants to be have a direct ownership interest in the operating company, you know, generally all of the operations are, are going to be C-Corp in the bottom, C-Corp at the top. So much of it depends on who the private equity in, or, or who the U.S. investor is, because keep in mind, a significant amount of the investment money comes from non-taxable entities uh, like pension funds and state pension funds, et cetera. And so many times, you know, they, they're more worried about having a legal fight later on than tax issues. <laughs> I think the governance is cleaner with, with C-Corps, you know, uh, LLCs. And with C-Corps, again, not to get too complex, but generally if we're, if we're setting up a business and we have a three or five year plan, we're going to have some pretty sophisticated planning like You know, we're going to offer uh, convertible debt. We're going to be looking at the U.S. Ex exit and making sure that, if possible, we guarantee a tax-free exit for U.S. investors at the federal level. And so it, it's hard to speak in generalities. But if I just had a, an Australian client and they were telling me, I'm going to invest in the U.S., we're going to have losses for the first few years, but we're going to make money eventually within five years. 
I would tell them, you know, operations, let's put everything in C corporations. Uh, there's no need to have any flow through entities unless you're going to have some investor that simply demands it. If you're not an initial, a founding investor in a partnership, and you come in later on and want to be able to obtain amortizable basis for your, for your investment, those rules can be complicated and, and somebody has to pay for your step up. And so it tends to be a point of extended economic negotiations in those kind of situations. <laughs> so, you, so to get away from all of that and to worry about all of that, the C-Corps are just so much easier. So to just to summarize, 99% of the um, structures you see when investor from overseas comes in, the foreign investor uses a Delaware C-Corp as a blocker, but then the actual trading business also sits in a C-Corp. So you just have two C-Corps. Yes, Good. at least two, sometimes many more. <laughs> Potentially every foreign investor has their own Delaware C-Corp. Yes. yes. Looking at the tax... If the trading business sits in a C-Corp, then that C-Corp pays, I think, 21% corporate tax, correct? And let's just look at federal tax and not at state tax so that it doesn't get so complicated. I think your federal corporate tax rate is 21%. Is that right? Yes, it is. So our trading C-Corp pays 21% tax. If it then distributes $79 of each $100 profit to our blocker, our Delaware C-Corp, then that blocker has to pay 21% again. And I understand there is no franking credit, correct? We don't get a credit for the um, tax that the trading C-Corp already paid, correct? And correct. And it's, it's usually because all of the corporations that are here in the U.S., as long as we have 80% ownership, we can file one consolidated return. And so all the transactions between the two disappear. But if the... Um C-Corp blocker only holds 20%, then you can't consolidate. Correct, correct. So you, you must own 80% of your corporate subsidiaries to consolidate, and all the operations will be reported as though they were one corporation. If you want anything less than that, then separate filings are required. And, and it just, it really complicates things because then it brings questions of trans transfer pricing, etc. So in our example, the uh, Delaware C-Corp that we use as a blocker would pay 21% again because the Delaware C-Corp only holds 20% of the uh, trading C-Corp. Because they're corporations, keep in mind that the operating entity underneath the Holdco is going to be responsible for its own taxes. If it decides to pass money up to the entity above it that owns it, that entity could be subject to a dividend exemption based on its ownership percentage, etc., And so there would really only be one level of tax in between the two if things are structured correctly. And you just used a new term, and that is called hold co. Which of the two companies is the hold co? Oh, sure. So I'm assuming that you've got a, an operating C-Corp and that the blocker is the blocker slash hold co. You also refer to the blocker as hold co. I have a feeling that's quite a common term because I've seen that before. Yeah, especially when you have a lot of cross-border transactions. It doesn't, it, it, the more general the term, the more easy for everyone to understand how to use it in the context of their own local country rules. And can you think of another possible exemption this hold co could refer to? Well, well normally if, if I want to get money out of the, um, out of the subsidiary, 
uh, and get it into the whole co, I'm going to structure it so that it's done in a way that's tax deductible. I'm going to either have it provide management services or have debt or et cetera. And so I, I'm, I'm hopefully going to take it out in a tax efficient manner and, okay. and avoid that, you know, and so avoid paying the 21% tax at the operating lower tier level company, instead generate a deduction down there. And then I'll pay tax when I receive the income at my level. Those efforts tend to be, you know, depending on the complexity, they tend to build over time. So, you know, usually the focus is let's just keep things up and running now. And then we'll have the tax accountants and the attorneys get everything papered up before the year closes. <laughs> yes. And of course, you always have an issue, a potential issue with transfer pricing. Yes. You know, people tend to want to thumb their nose at two things in general, indirect taxes and transfer pricing. But it's funny, though, when they, with the indirect taxes, they just ignore them totally. They say, track the liability and we'll deal with it someday. But with transfer pricing, everybody wants to pull out their trusty ruler and say, I think it's 5%. <laughs> mm -hmm. Why 5%? Oh, you know, it, it's just the old general, you know, that, that sounds good to me. And, and it just doesn't fly with the, with the taxing authorities, right? Uh, I, I was mentioning earlier the, the information reporting regime here in the U.S. that the IRS has put in place. And, and it's not a carrot, it's a stick that they use penalties to enforce it. And so if you don't have the proper transfer pricing documentation or you have just a, something as simple as an intercompany do to do from that's not doesn't have interest income or expense and it's just not dealt with on the return the irs requires that you disclose these things in excruciating detail i mean what line of the return is it what's the dollar amount on the return or what's the dollar amount at issue they require that you disclose these things in the return and so many times it's a race you know i know to try to address these things. We have to report it because it wasn't addressed in year one, but we want to get it cleaned up by year two or three. So could that be why instead of running the operating business through a C-Corp, you would run it through an LLC? Because then you don't have this potential double taxation because then the profit in the LLC just gets passed on to the hold co. The hold co pays 21% tax. You only pay US tax once. And then you don't have to do all these gymnastics around transfer pricing. Yes, that would be a better structure. And then also, you know, the, um, the hold co in the U.S., you know, you can have, you can bring in investment money at that level. We would talk, we had talked before about perhaps having an LLC underneath the hold co or the, as the operating company because U.S. investors demanded it. But many times they're just as happy to own an interest in the operating company at the hold co level. Before you said that there's really no reason for a foreign investor to have the trading operations in an LLC, that it is better to just have the trading operations in a C-Corp. But now it, it seems to be that it's actually better to hold the trading operation in an LLC because then you avoid the double taxation. Then you only just pay tax once at the hold call level and not twice. So, so keep in mind, you've got if you have two C-Corps, a parent and a sub, Again, they're going to join on a, on a consolidated return. They're going to pay tax on the initial income once. And any intercompany transactions, they're not going to pay tax on. Yeah, but if the hold call only holds 20% in the trading company, then you can't consolidate. Right, right. And so, but, but again, the only time, in general, that hold co is, if, if it receives income, it's going to be structured in the form of a tax deduction for the operating entity, or it's going to come up in a dividend 
that that may or that's going to have limited taxation. But you're right; there is there are two levels of taxation there. The real benefit to having that top entity be a C corp is when you, as an Australian citizen, sell your stock in that C corporation. You don't have it. You're not a tax resident of the U.S. That's that sale isn't going to be taxed by the U.S. Resident buys the stock of a U.S. corporation from an Australian individual, and that's usually the way that folks look at monetizing the exit out. So folks don't really worry a lot about that second tier of tax at the top level. At the outset, at the gate, we structure it so that it has enough and it has enough cash in it to run, or enough of an income flow to run. The exit's going to be at the shareholder level, and so that's really what we're concerned about. What are the taxes that are going to be paid there if you're a non-U.S. person? Generally, as long as you don't have any connection with the U.S., you don't have any, you haven't been here, you haven't accidentally created tax residency or permanent establishment here, you're not going to pay any tax on the exit. And that's, that's the perfect answer for an Australian. People like that symmetry. Uh, although I will tell you that, you know, we, we get various combinations because people change advisors, priorities change, plan change. If I have a 10-year-old entity, it may have gone through two or three different structures. We'll generally... And that's a result of people demanding certain structures over time. So, so the entity can change. You can meet new investors, demands, et cetera. It's, it, we have many, many ways of effectuating tax-free reorganizations here in the U.S. And so um, you know, don't feel like you're stuck with one answer. You always go in with a plan. You always have some expectation of the future. And if things don't pan out or if you make a left turn instead of a right, we're generally able to get things fixed. Whether the whole co is deriving income from a C corp underneath it or a partnership underneath it, you know, in, in general, as long as the, the operating entity underneath it is just operating, there's only going to be one level of tax paid. You know, either at the whole co level, if it's a flow through because the buck will stop there, taxes will be due there, or at the subsidiary level because it's a C corp and it's going to file its own tax return. If the whole cone needs some kind of a cash a source of cash for the next few years, et cetera, you know, we can come up with a tax deductible way of that having that happen, or we can just leave enough cash in it at the beginning. It's just that most folks, when they come in these, everybody has the idea that they're going to make an exit. It's a very different strategy when you say, I want to build a company that's going to be here forever, and I'm going to continue to draw income from it somehow for the rest of my life. Those pose different problems because you have to find a way to get the income out and get it overseas and reduce the withholding. But when folks come here and I meet people, you know, with inbound investments, everybody has a timeline of three to five years. They want to build something and then they want to exit it. And it's usually the nirvana is, can I get a tax-free exit for myself and any U.S. investors? And we say, yes, that can be done. So you have been very much coming from a timeline of three to five years. If you look more at 10 to 15 years, would you then still say, yeah, and go for a C-Corp or would you then go with an LLC as operating company? Probably that type of entity would have a multinational profile. And so it would be doing business around the world. So we would suggest C-Corps because partnerships tend to present problems when you, when you have ownership across a border. The biggest issue though, because in, in these other entities it's a location of the situs for the assets. We're going to want to skinny down the U.S. operations to the extent possible. I'm going to want to put the IP in a favorable jurisdiction. I'm going to want to put debt in a favorable jurisdiction, you know, or, or you know, small sales and marketing distributorships, et cetera, in different jurisdictions. But I'm going to try to keep the U.S. profile as thin as possible because when I, want, when I make an exit, 
I want to keep the U.S. tax issues uh, to a minimum. When you have an entity that's a flow through on one side of the border, but a corporate entity on the other side of the border, they, the tax authorities understand that that's the games where our games are played and the reporting burden and the, uh, the, the ability to obtain those benefits that we used to get in the past is greatly diminished than it was 10 years ago. And even going forward in the future, you know, the focus of tax authorities, digital goods and services and hybrid entities. Yes, tell me, what is a hybrid entity? A hybrid entity is, uh, let's say that we set up an entity in the U.S., and for U.S. tax law, it's a corporation, but for Australian tax law, it's a partnership. Those mismatches allow a lot of opportunity for hijinks to ensue in the eyes of the tax authorities, and so there's special focus applied to those. They have their place. They're a great tool. But they're special purpose tools, and so they're, they're, they need to be used with some knowledge. So when we use the term LLC, we're generally referring to that entity as when it's operating as a partnership, because we fell into that, that mode of speaking. In, in general, that three to five year timeline, that's going to be C-Corp, C-Corp, C-Corp everywhere. If you're operating multinationally, it's going to be C-Corp, C-Corp everywhere. It's only when you have investors that really want a flow through entity that you you put that in place because they are horribly maintenance intensive. The state withholding itself could run five or ten thousand dollars a year just to figure it out. That's not even to begin to remit it. But generally, we might see Series A money coming in. They want to come in as an LLC. The, the serious investors, the folks that I, the sophisticated investors, they come in. They want a corporation. They want to put an investment in it that's convertible debt, convertible to preferred stock. Because that answers, that protects their interest to, to the maximum extent possible. You know, they're treated as a debtor, so they can come after you. For tax purposes, they can roll it over into equity and make a tax-efficient exit. Everybody's just used to the C-Corp. It's just much easier to use. Keep in mind that the character of the payment from the LLC to the blocker slash hold co, it, it's a non-taxable event. So it's so so the seventy nine dollars can get into the hold co. It, it's already paid the tax on it. It's a non taxable event. It's only when the seventy nine dollars goes from the corporate hold co slash blocker to the Australian entity or individual that it takes on the character of a dividend because it's a payment from an investment in a corporation, and that's that's where these rules are kick in. So let's say you have an LLC. Plus, of course, the C Corp blocker. So you have an LLC plus a hold co. If you then distribute the profit after tax from the hold co to the Australian entity, this holding tax should be nil since the Australian entity holds over 80% of the C Corp. And that is based on the amendment bill to the US Australian DTA. And let me just quickly read to you what it says. It will first sound very dry, but let's take it apart and then it hopefully makes sense. So it says, No tax will be chargeable in the source country. So the source country in our example is the US. No tax will be chargeable in the source country on dividends where a beneficially entitled company resident in the other country, so in our example that is Australia, holds 80% or more of the voting power of the company paying the dividends. A limit of 5% will apply for other company shareholdings that constitute a voting interest of 10% or greater. So if we now reread this using our example, it says no withholding tax 
will be chargeable in the US by the US on dividends where an Australian entity holds 80% or more of the voting power of the US company paying the dividends. So less than 10%, the withholding rate is 15%. Usually it's 30%, but the US Australian DTA reduces it to 15%. So on portfolio dividends, you have a withholding tax of 15%. If you hold 10 to 80%, the withholding tax rate is 5%. And then when you hold 80% or more, then the withholding tax is zero. So that, of course, means that when you hold 10 to 80%, you still pay withholding tax of 5%, but you don't get a FITO since the dividend is a non-portfolio dividend and treated as NANE. You might remember that the cutoff between portfolio dividends and non-portfolio dividends is 10%. So when you're over 10%, you receive the dividend as NANE and you don't get a FITO, but you still pay withholding tax of 5%. But now, Back to an example. Let's say the LLC has a $500 profit and so 20% of that $500 is $100. So we say that the hold co holds 20% of the LLC. So that means $100 of the LLC profit go to hold co and then the hold co pays 21% federal tax. Let's disregard state taxes. So the hold co pays 21% federal tax and so that leaves $79 which are then distributed to Australia without any withholding tax since Australia passes the 80% threshold. So it really doesn't matter if the, if the underlying entity is a um, LLC or a C-corporation. The dividends paid from the C-corp blocker, as long as they meet these requirements from this article, should flow without any withholding, regardless of the character of the, the entity underneath it. But now let's say we don't use a blocker. Let's say our Australian entity invests directly into the LLC. Then we would have 5% withholding tax, correct? Yes. And the Australian entity would have to file a US tax return and pay US tax on the $100 profit. Yes, yes, because the Australian entity or person owns directly the interest in the LLC. When that income flows through, the tax bill will flow through as well. And so they're both treated as operating a trader business in the U.S. and they have to file a U.S. tax return. For the corporation, it would be as though they operated a U.S. branch and the Australian corporation was filing here and it would have a corporate a federal filing obligation for that income. So the Australian entity would pay 21% tax on the $100 of profit that are attributed to them from the LLC. Yes. The reason why folks are, are really hesitant to do that is because the, um, the Australian entity or, or if an individual held it individually would have to get a U.S. tax ID number. And people are just loath to do that. They just don't want to be caught in the U.S. tax net because God knows where that will end. Exactly. And it's been, it's funny, you know, I, I was in Australia during uh, uh, 2019 and it seemed like every, for two weeks doing speaking engagements, and it seemed like everyone we met to had this tenuous connection with the IRS. Either they, they married a person who was a U.S. citizen and never bothered to do anything about their tax residency, or they had spent enough time here in the U.S. that maybe they were a U.S. tax resident. It gets very interesting. If we cover two scenarios now, the whole co holds 20% in the LLC, 
or the Australian entity holds 20% in the LLC. But now let's say we actually put the trading entity into a C-Corp. So the C-Corp pays 21% tax on the $100 of profit and then distributes $79 to the hold co. And then you're saying through management fees, etc., you can reduce this profit to zero and then... Yeah, but then you have nothing to distribute to Australia if you reduce your profit in the whole code to zero, correct? Yeah, well, it, it gets complicated, right? It depends on, on, on your opportunity to, to pull the different levers to generate either a tax deduction. But let's just say in general, it's, it's a C-corp underneath the whole code. It pays the tax at its own level. It has to file its own tax return because they can't join and filing a consolidated return. Generally the tax from the ongoing operations will be paid by the operating entity to the extent that it doesn't, it, it has to send up income to the whole co in just the form of a dividend because there's no services being performed, et cetera. It's generally going to pay uh, some tax on that. There's going to be a limited exemption because of its limited ownership. And so there will be a second level of tax on that. There, there'll be a, a limited exemption. Uh, so it, then it will pay another 21% tax on top of that dividend. This is why we generally plan for an exit and for not, not for the ongoing conveyance of, of funds from the U.S. to the non-U.S. shareholder. The C-Corp plus hold co-structure is attractive when you're not looking at ongoing profit distribution from the C-Corp to, to the hold co and then to overseas. So it's more when you're after capital gains, but when you're more after ongoing profit distribution, then you might be better off with an LLC and then hold co structure because then you don't face this double taxation. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes it easier on first blush because you know what? We just put the two entities together, even though they're not on one tax return. We just take the number for one tax return and put it on the other. There's no transfer pricing. There's no other issues like that. But again, it, it causes problems if you start to have some non-US ownership, et cetera. Um, and it causes problems depending on the jurisdiction because we haven't even talked about state taxes and the different withholdings that they require, et cetera. So I, I would say the preferential way to set things up, if you're going to have an entity um, that's operating just within the U.S. or in, multinational, in a multinational setting and the money all coming from outside the U.S. is to have nothing but C-Corps because uh, you, you don't have an ongoing need to pull money out of the U.S. The money will be realized and exit. It's only when you have investors that demand, I want the flow through of the losses, I want to step up for my investment, et cetera, that you get pulled into the world of these LLCs and that it can complicate manners. But I would think that if I was just an Australian operating, you know, an entity, that there would be no appeal to an LLC for me. It would purely be to uh, any secondary audience like investors or a buyer. Because we do, you know, it's funny, we do deals where Somebody wants to buy in and, and maybe they want to buy in 80% of the company and 40% of the new money is tax exempt and they don't care. They don't care about any of these things. And, and all they want to do is plan, you know, the other people want to plan for an exit. So we generally have one person that is very, very concerned about how they're going to leave this. And their concern generates into engaging professionals to, to deal with all of this stuff. Somebody gets into the driver's seat because they have a lot of skin in the game, I guess is the best way to put it. And their preferences will drive all of this. I completely get that 
if the exit is the end game. So you're just looking for a capital gain at exit. You don't worry about profit distributions over those three to five years. I completely understand that the C-Corp plus hold co structure is the best. But I'm just not sure yet how it is best to structure a longer term business relationship that is not like a startup where you just get in quickly and hopefully make a buck, but where you set up a long term structure. Then I'm just not sure what is better to have the operating company in the US that also, for example, holds all the international trademarks, whether to have that sitting within an LLC or also within a C-Corp. Well, usually we're, we're never going to put those things in an LLC just because when you start moving IP around across a border, it's going to have a bad tax answer if you start using flow-through entities or entities that are hybrid entities. And when I say bad tax answer, it's only because authorities have been focused on the ability to move money back and forth in those situations. Usually what's going to happen if you're the, you know, the exit we seem to have down if, if you're going to have ongoing operations for an indeterminate amount of time, they're usually going to be not only within the U.S., but multiple countries. And so the, the game or the playbook is to skinny down the U.S. operations to the extent possible. The operating company, as you indicated earlier, the IP may be overseas. The know-how, the trademarks, the designs, et cetera, may all be overseas, and we're just merely fabricating and selling in the U.S., or maybe we're just selling in the U.S., and so we really only have a sales and marketing function, and so it's really just a, a small transfer pricing question. Lots of questions to answer, but if you're looking at that type of timeline, you start looking at these avenues, your ability to uh, defer taxes, your ability to place low basis assets that are going to appreciate in the future in the right jurisdiction. And so it's a very, very complicated calculus. Nine times out of 10, 9.9 times out of 10, there'll be no need for an LLC in any of this planning. It just tends to, like I said, draw a lot of attention because of the, 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 all the rules around the hybrid regimes that they see as abusive, or it, it just becomes maintenance intensive at some point. Because yeah. there's, there's, there's a lot of withholding traps, et cetera, that have to be run. And so um, I, I know many a client that's come to us and said, I've got this structure and I'm, I'm paying, you know, quarter million dollars a year to remain in compliance in North America. And we look at it and say, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And we, we can get rid of a large chunk of it and just make things simpler. Simpler by moving it to a C-Corp from an LLC. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the C-Corp should be your line troops. They should be your default entity that you want to work with. And LLC is when you have a unique mission to accomplish. And nine times out of 10, that unique mission will be from a new investor that wants something. And so that can be taken care of. We can carve out certain operations for them. They may not be a U.S. resident. They may be a EU resident and have, have different concerns. But we can generally get to where they need to be in a much easier manner by using C-Corps to hold all the operations. And then uh, you know, their, their ownership might be in an LLC above the C-Corp, but generally everything will be owned from one hold co in a pyramid down. Hmm. Sorry, I have two more questions for you. One is just quickly, why not just have one C-Corp and have the foreign investor investing directly into the C-Corp? It's usually because of reasons the attorneys are concerned with. For example, they may have some mezzanine debt and want multiple layers of, of entities. 
they may want to put the debt in a certain jurisdiction and require you know multiple entities, et cetera. It's usually because the lawyers want to bring in some flexibility later on or trying to forestall a problem in the future. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, one would work fine. When when usually the tax folks get concerned when you have a corporation and there's transfer pricing issues and there's coming up with the functional profit and loss statements from one corporation can be harder than when you tell the client, why don't you set up three? Why don't you set a sales sales entity? Why don't you set up a marketing entity? And why don't you set up an operating entity? And then we don't have any question about what the markup should apply to to what. We've got three entities, they all operate. We can keep the accounting straight. <laughs> yes, yes, it complicates things. Just very quickly, when when a foreign shareholder holds an interest in a C-Corp, do they have to file U.S. tax returns? No, the wonderful thing about the U.S. system is that it's predicated on withholding at the source. And the horrible thing about the U.S. tax system is it's predicated on withholding at the source. And, and so I say that because, you know, you, as long as you have all your paperwork in order, you know, all the paperwork that says I'm entitled to the following treaty exemptions, et cetera, only U.S. entities will, will have force applied upon them to collect the right, ex, you know, collect the right uh, exemption certificates and to withhold the right amount. Once they make that payment out, if they fail to withhold, et cetera, it's the U.S. entity that's, that's left holding the bag. And so, you know, there's, um, there, there's really, it's really very painless when you sell as a U.S. shareholder. There's, there's nothing to report. The, when you sold your stock, the withholding's been, there's no withholding because you sold to another shareholder. And while you own it, as long as you don't have any transactions with the entity, you're not receiving, you know, dividends or, or income from it. You're not, um, you know, receiving compensation. It, it, it's a very passive, passive reporting scheme. When you, as a foreign investor, when you invest directly into an LLC, then you do have a filing obligation in the U.S. for your U.S. sourced income. But if you invest directly into a C-Corp, then the C-Corp has a filing obligation, but you as the shareholder don't have a filing obligation in the U.S. because any dividends are just subject to 5% of withholding tax if you hold less than 80% or zero withholding tax when you hold more than 80%, correct? Exactly. Just very quickly talking about debt. If an Australian investor loans to a US corporation or a US LLC, does that trigger any filing obligations in the US? No, it shouldn't, because again, we're withholding at the source system. And so as, as long as you have your documentation provided to them that says, I'm entitled to zero or reduced weight rate of withholding under these rules, I'm putting you on notice. As long as they, uh, they withhold the required amount of withholding, you don't have any obligation to report beyond that. And that's true if you're receiving a dividend from a U.S. corporation if you're receiving uh, a royalty, if you're receiving uh, interest payments. Yes, and interest payments, I don't know whether you can confirm this so quickly, but interest payments are subject to a withholding tax of 10% based on 2.43 in, in Article 7 of the Amendment Protocol. Off, off the top of my head, that does sound correct because have you heard of FDAP? F no. uh, FIC? So 
so the U.S. wants to encourage people to invest money into the U.S. and earn interest income. They want to encourage bank deposits here, investment. And so there's a term called FDAP, F-D-A-P, which stands for Fixed Determinable Annual Periodic Income. And so basically all these passive forms of income are subject to 10%, minimum you know, 10% withholding unless there's a reduced treaty rate. And so by subjecting the, you know, the interest that the Australian shareholder, in your example, is earning from a loan to its U.S. corporation, it just puts them on the same footing as if they had deposited the money and were earning interest income in a bank. And so that, that's why the 10% rule stays in place. Welcome back. In the next update, US 9, let's talk with Seth Hertz about how Australian companies are handled in US tax returns. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next update. <laughs>